0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven.
1: Just this past week, uh, I had the strongest, one of the strongest memories, at least in terms of feeling that I've had in a really long time. Friday night, our student group here um, had an event here at the building, they had their Christmas party and I have two daughters who are part of that ministry. And so we were at home and I needed to get them down here. And I'm one of those people who uses ways for everything, no matter even if I know where I'm going, I wanna get there as fast as humanly possible. And some of you are like that. And so every time I hop in the car, I plot in where I wanna go. And this time, our directions took us from our house out in the Sugarland area to here in a way that it never had before. Like lots of times I just shoot up 90 and I get off at 610 and come around 288 and that's pretty common. But there must have been something going on because this Friday it took me straight up 90 almost all the way through town, which meant that I had to drive through the medical center. And so, I'm driving through the medical center, we got our family all in the car, and as we're in the heart of it, I point out to the girls, hey, just two blocks over that way, that's where you were born. And I have strong memories about the night that our oldest daughter, Malia was born. Actually, I have strong memories about that A whole couple of days when she was born and my memories and my wife's memories are not the same memories. I remember correctly because I was not drugged at any point and that is not something that she can say. She will tell you that driving from our house in Katy at the time to get here, that I remembered that as we were on our way to take her to be induced, that I remembered, oh, I haven't eaten dinner. And so while she couldn't eat, it didn't stop me from stopping at Wendy's and picking up something for myself. (laughs) And she will tell you that while she was in labor, that I left our room and went downstairs to the cafeteria and got a breakfast taco and brought it back up and then complained about the breakfast taco being cold while she was in labor. And I don't remember it that way. I remember the breakfast taco being cold. I don't remember complaining about it. And I don't remember that point of labor being all that bad. I think she was like (laughs) sleep. But after she had been in labor and um, our daughter Malia came, came down the birth canal about halfway and decided that that's all the work that she was going to do, which has been very predictive of her personality, <laughs> they had to, she had to have a C-section. And those memories coming out of the operating room and the nurse taking Malia and bringing her out there, outside the operating room and cleaning her off and using that little booger free thingy that they use on the baby and putting the identification on her wrist and her ankles, that little baby lojack that they put on you in the hospital. <laughs> and then saying, here you go, dad. And I thought, are you insane? (laughs) I have no clue. I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I am the youngest child in the family. I'm like one of even the youngest cousins. Like, I am the baby of the family, as my grandparents put it. I never cared for younger people. I never went through that phase when I was like a teenager where I babysat other people's kids like my daughters do, like I babysat once, ever, and it was at a ladies' event at our church, and my mom convinced some poor unsuspecting young mother to let me watch her two kids, and everything was going fine until I dropped the toddler on his head, and this kid wailed i didn't think it was that bad but it was so bad that his mother heard from the other side of the church building and came to check on her child because all moms have that like mom sonar where they know exactly what's going on and she got there and i just tried to act like i didn't know what Happened. I don't know, everything was fine a minute ago, and she never said anything to me about it, but she just never, ever, ever said anything to me ever again in the history of our (laughs) life. Like I've never spoken to the woman again, and that was what I was feeling when the nurse handed me our oldest daughter, and then three years later. We had our second daughter and I was so clear, like never did I feel so inadequate that I did not possess the love and care and nurture and maturity to care for another human being. And for me, those first days when our girls were home were so life-altering because there are things that you just don't think of before you have your first child. You think just because you've done it every other night of your life that you're going to sleep again. And you are not ever, ever going to sleep again. Not like you did before. And I remember a couple of days after Malia came home just like sneaking away uh, to the bathroom to talk to my friend Jeff and he and his wife just like we had were uh, struggling with infertility and I just like really quiet like in a whisper said, Jeff, don't do it. <laughs> and every time I drive by that hospital, I'm just reminded. A baby, a baby changes everything. And those of you who are Parents who've had your own kids who have made other children your own through adoption, you know. Like, there's, there's no place in your life that a baby doesn't touch. And it doesn't change a few things. It changes everything. And not even just your actions but your motivations, it changes everything. And so every year during Advent, I reread one of my favorite short stories by a guy named Bret Hart. It's called The Luck of Roaring Camp. And Roaring Camp is a gold mining camp at uh, the turn of the century during the gold rush. And it is populated by some of the worst men on the planet. They are roughnecks and criminals, some of them who are fleeing from the law. And they live in this mining camp together. And the way that Hart describes it, is like these are the people in society, in the world that nobody wants to be around, that they don't even like being around one another, but they find themselves all living together, mining for gold in roaring camp. It's all those people who are missing fingers, missing teeth. Hart says in the story that the best shot in town had one eye. And in that town, of a 100 men, there's one woman. And her name is Cherokee Sal. And you use your imagination to figure out the profession of Cherokee Sal. But when we meet her, She is in the middle of the pangs of childbirth. And as the men sit together in the lower floor of a saloon, they make bets on whether she will live or die and the gender of the baby. Like there's one guy in the camp who knows anything about women or childbirth and what he knows is limited to the fact that he had been married two times. So he is dispatched to go and help deliver this baby. And he does. And the baby lives and Cherokee Sal doesn't. And so they take the baby and set him in a candle box and slowly the men of the town of Roaring Camp pass by to take a look at their newest citizen. And as they pass through, a couple drop some coins in the candle box to buy some of the things that the baby will need. And then a man named Kentuck reaches the candle box and he peers down into it and reaches down to touch the baby and the baby reaches back up and grabs his finger. And when he does, everything changes in Roaring Camp. They decide to name the little boy, Luck. And there are other towns around, towns that have people who are much more equipped to take care of a baby, but they decide that they don't trust those other towns, so they're gonna keep luck right there with them. And the first thing that they realize is that now we have a little baby in this town. And because we have this little baby, um, we can't be as loud as we have always been. This baby needs some quiet. And so they give it to him. And the volume of the town begins to shrink, and as the volume in town shrinks, so does the profanity in town. As a matter of fact, The only time the town gets loud is when the men come together to sing to Luck. And they also decide that Luck needs a cleaner place to live. And so they clean the room where he's going to stay and they bring in carpet and mirrors. And when they bring in the mirrors, they realize that they aren't looking too hot themselves. So this leads to shaving and showers and wearing clean clothes. Well, they don't have anything to do with baby luck during the day. So they cart him off with them to go mining every day. And some of them start to believe that as baby luck sits next to the river, that their luck starts to change. And they're starting to find a little bit of gold. And slowly, one thing after another, little by little over town, luck changes, roaring camp. And I love that story and I read it every advent. And I find someone to tell that story to every Advent because I need to be reminded that a baby changes everything. In Ecclesia, we are in the last week of Advent. And Advent simply means coming. And what we have been doing for the last four weeks is that we have been preparing ourselves for the coming of Jesus, the Lord who comes in the shape in the form of a baby who is intended to change everything. And not just little parts, but everything. Jesus comes and Jesus changes the way that humans relate to one another. Jesus changes what our priorities are. Jesus changes what we think success and failure look like, where our, our energies go. And perhaps the most shattering thing about Advent, this beginning of the new Christian year, is that many of us, most people maybe, Come to Jesus or expect Jesus to come to them because they want to make their lives better and they think Jesus will make their lives better. When in reality, the coming of Jesus into your lives is intended to rearrange your life. To change everything about your life. And what happens is we say we want transformation, but what we really want are tweaks. For Jesus to kind of help us out on the edges maybe a relationship here, maybe some financial gain there. There aren't many people who get excited about having their world turned upside down. Because here's a hard reality. For the most part, you and I have the life we want, we don't always have the life we say we want, but we have the life we want, and your life right now is perfectly engineered to get the results you're getting and something in human nature that's true for everyone I've ever met is that we would rather be unhappy than uncomfortable. And Jesus is coming to change the whole thing. When Matthew tells the story of the coming of Jesus, he tells it in some surprising and startling ways And from the very outset, what is really clear is that people who come to worship Jesus come with different motivations. This is what Matthew says in Matthew 2, he says, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in the province of Judea at the time when King Herod reigned. Not long after Jesus was born, Magi, wise men, or seers from the east made their way from the east to Jerusalem these wise men made inquiries. Where is the newborn who is the king of the Jews? We were far away in the east. We saw his star and we have followed its glisten and gleam all this way to worship him. King Herod began to hear rumors of the wise men's quest and he and all of his followers in Jerusalem were worried. So Herod called all the leading Jewish teachers, the chief priests, and the head scribes, and he asked them where Hebrew tradition claimed the long-awaited anointed one would be born. An ancient Hebrew prophet, Micah, said this, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are no poor relation, for from your people will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Herod called the wise men to him, demanding to know the exact time and special, the special star had appeared to them. Then Herod sent them to Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem and search high and low for the Savior child. And as soon as you know where he is, report it to me so that I may go and worship him. Well, you don't have to have been around the scriptures for a long time. To know where that story goes what herod really wants but in this little interaction between herod and the wise men we see how people respond when jesus shows up now for some of us we have friends relatives family members maybe even some of us here like when jesus shows up that's the last thing that we want to hear about like that's the last thing that we want to touch us like i've got freedom From religion, I don't need to hear about all of that. I feel coerced by it. I feel dominated by it. I'm not interested in it. But those aren't the only people who are anxiety-ridden when the subject of Jesus comes up. When the subject of Jesus comes up, there are a lot of religious people who get just as anxious. Just think about this. That Herod the non-believer wants to kill Jesus as a baby. And the Pharisees, the religious people, actually kill Jesus as an adult. Religious people who want to use Jesus for their own position and their own power are actually more dangerous than non religious people who just want to ignore him. And it doesn't really matter which camp you fall into, whether you are a believer or whether you're a non believer our response to the coming of Jesus is almost entirely based on our desire for our own power and control. Because a baby changes everything. And sometimes, oftentimes, maybe even most of the time, we don't want it to. There are parts of us that say, don't do it and that's how threatening Jesus was and that's how threatening Jesus is because there's one thing that's true about Jesus coming in to the world. is that when Jesus comes, you can no longer have your own way. Herod wants to get rid of Jesus, the promised king of the Jews, because if there's anything that the old king doesn't want, it's a new king. And every one of us, has our own kingdom. Dallas Willard says, your kingdom is wherever it is that you rule and reign, where the things are done as you want them done. The way you want them done, how you want them done, when you want them done, and everybody has their own kingdom. Like for some of us, our kingdom is like just our car. That's the only place where things are done the way that we want them done. Maybe your purse or your wallet, someplace like that. I have a study in our home, and that is my study. Don't leave your trash in here. This is my kingdom. And you have your kingdom. It could be your house, your job, your marriage, your dating relationship. Everybody has their own kingdom, and the last thing that the old king wants is a new king. Jesus says, according to the gospel writer Mark, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And so, Ecclesia, each Advent, we ask you to embrace the tenets of Advent conspiracy, where we recall who it is that we are in light of who Jesus is. And one of the ways that we do that is the invitation for all of us to worship fully. Because worship can be really slippery. Because we can say that we want to worship and be like Herod and want something really different than worship. Well, Herod makes a strategic mistake. He doesn't ask me about Jesus. He asks wise men. Because I'm probably too much like Herod. For whom worshiping Jesus is way too much about what it means for me. What I can get out of it, how I can leverage it, what's the benefit to me. But Herod doesn't ask me, he asks wise men. And the wise men seek to worship Jesus not in search of gifts to be exchanged like we do at Christmas, but for gifts to be given. That the coming of Jesus for these wise men is an opportunity to give gifts, to extend themselves in worship, to offer the best of what they have to offer to this baby who has changed everything. And that's why each year we dedicate our offerings to living water and that we really envision and see ourselves as a global church that God has gifted in so many fabulous ways to be a gift to the rest of the world. And so this is our opportunity every year to step into fully what it means to be people who seek to worship fully and accept the invitation of transformation. And so Ramon, our campus pastor here at this campus, is going to share a little bit about what we have done so far and what God's put ahead of us to do. Would you welcome Ramon for me?
0: Thank you, <laughs> Thank you Um I've been a part of this community for the last eight years. Um, I've been on staff for the last year and a half. And one of the things that really caught our attention and our hearts to, to become a part of this community was how these values or this items, this bullet points, uh, however you may want to call them, they're embedded into who we are as a community. And being part of the staff, I've had the opportunity of working the last uh, last nine months on two projects that have been very close to, to my heart, because uh, they get to serve Hispanic communities. So if you can't tell by my accent, English is not my first language, um, I'm Puerto Rican. Um, so we've gotten the opportunity to do amazing work in the Cucuta, which is the Colombia and Venezuela border. Um, if you've been a part of the community for the last three or four. Months you've heard us talk a lot about that because they've been they've grown close to our hearts. So, um, in the the last season, in the last months or so, not our last trip, we came to know that they were not going to be able to celebrate the coming of the Jesus, of the King, of the baby that changes everything without their tamales. And if you've been here long enough, you know that one of our spiritual gifts is partying and eating, (laughs) so we cannot have Venezuelan brothers and sisters celebrating the coming of the Jesus of the King without their which is their tamales. So what did we do? Of course, we set out to do a campaign where we could get a million tamales. We didn't do a million, but we did a few thousands. Um, So Chris had the opportunity to go down there this last week, um, and spent some time with pastors. So the initial idea was for us to provide some ajacas for some of our friends at the border, but then the idea came about, what if we invited some pastors to cross the border and take their ingredients and take them back home and make their ajacas? Wouldn't that be amazing? It would be amazing, Chris, but we only have four days to pull this off. Okay, let's try it. So long story short. We were able to get 90 pastors with their wives to come and cross the border. Some of them travel 5, 10, up to 25 hours to get to where we were at, to where Chris was at. So we were able to host them at the hotel, which for some of them was like an answer prayer because they wanted to take their wife to a hotel, to a nice place, and take a small vacation. Um, so we didn't know that, but they came uh, in the middle of what we were doing and said, this is an answer prayer. Some of them said, like, we did not have any, we just told our church that we did not have the resources to do the ajakas. Um, but then I got a call from a pastor friend that said, hey, hay un gringo loco que nos quiere invitar para que vengamos a buscar a Yacas. So I'm in. <laughs> so they came. Um, and we have a picture of, um, uh, here's a picture of Chris and, and our pastor Mauricio. And this is a cooler that we were able to set up for them. Um, we bought to make about 15 to 18,000 coolers. Um, um, and divided into 150 coolers for our 90 pastor friends. So this is one couple, they got their cooler, they got their ingredients. So now they, they took them back home and we got some pictures of them at their churches being able to be part of the miracle of provision, of God showing up for them and, being, and them being able to celebrate their season with their ayakas. And this is all because of your generosity and the way that we embrace the values of our Advent season, where we are called to worship fully, but that worship has to take us to a response. And our response this time around has been. We want to embrace our brothers and sisters in Venezuela, um, and we cannot do it for all, but we can do it for some and if you 've been here long enough, you have heard us say that we would like to do for one what we could do what we wish we could do for a thousand and a million. so we were able to you know pitch in, and about a hundred churches and many families and communities are able to celebrate this Christmas season with their ajacas and again, because it is an important thing for us like. Meals and having a good time and being uh, and having fellowship, that's what we want to share, that's our gift to expand to that community. And the second project that we've had the opportunity to come together as a, as a community, as an Ecclesian family, uh, it's called the Refugio Program, which is a foster and daycare center um, that we have set up. Uh, Again, if you've been here over the last few months, you've heard us talk about this. This has been an invitation for families, about 30 families to open up their homes to become foster parents, but for kids that are unaccompanied, that unaccompanied come unaccompanied at the border. So there are different stories that, how that might come about. They might come with an uncle, or with an aunt, or with a family member, and they might not have full documentation as they come into the border. So get, they get taken away from that family and they're put in detention centers. We've said, like, these kids would rather be in families than in detention centers. Um, so there's a partner that reached out to us and said, hey, do you think that you would have families that would have a huge heart and go through an inconvenience of taking a kid into their house? And we said, do we ever? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So we've put together a few orientation sessions and uh, we put a call out and some of you have responded to that and little did we know that a few months, a few weeks later, we would have our first placement and we have here the Verms family that I'm gonna ask them to come up here with me. This is little Melanie. Oh yeah, you, you can do that. So a couple of pointers, um, when we do a baby dedication, and this is a particular one, um, and I'll tell you why in a minute, well, you kind of know at this point. Um, so there's some restrictions as far, as far as pictures and social media, so that we're asking you not, ta- not to take photos of this moment. Um, her name is Melanie, um, and every time we do a baby dedication we ask you to send an email, to send a note. This time around, especially if you're a Spanish, or you can go to Google Translate, however you want to do it, Would you leave a note that we can send uh, with Melanie as she gets back with her family in the upcoming weeks, that she has that to carry and that she might remember that there was a community of faith here in Houston that... It's thinking, of, it's thinking in her, about her, about her family, about her upbringing, and that wishes the best for her. So you might want to take a picture of that and come back to that later. Blessing at EcclesiaHouston.org um, and write Melanie and her family uh, a note. So this is uh, David and, and Jessica. They, they got no kids on their own, so they, they kind of don't know what they're doing. But they were here in this room and they heard the call and they say we can do something. And I've seen God show up in many ways when we say, here we are, even though we're not sure on what, how it'll play out. So well, about a week ago or so, they got a call. We got a little tiny baby, two-year-old, which I don't know how we get there, people, as a humanity, a two-year-old. And I don't know where you land politically on this. And that, frankly, I. Don't care much about that. I just care about this little baby. That she has, I mean, she has, she's just there. And we have an opportunity as a community to bridge that gap and be there for her a few weeks. Um, as the government figures out where she goes next, it will be with families, with her family and they're vetting that process and whatnot. Um, you can be a part of this story. Um, again, because we believe the spiritual gift, our spiritual gift is partying. This is hard to do, like filling out the paperwork, it's really, really, really hard. So what do we think of? We're throwing a fill out your paperwork party. <laughs> so on January 11th at 10 a.m. in one of our rooms over here, uh, we want you to come in. We will get to tell some of their stories. Um, the pair, there's another family that got an, uh, a pair of siblings, a nine and a seven-year-old, Luis and Naomi, they're from El Salvador, she's from Honduras, um, they'll be we're, we're hopeful, hopeful that we, some of them will be in, get to share their story, how has that been, and we'll have people that will help you fill out your paperwork. So. EcclesiaHouston.org slash Refugio will be the way to go to reserve your spot so that we know that you're coming. We're we're still in need of some families. Um, It'll be ideal if you know a little bit of Spanish, but Google Translate is, I mean, it is amazing. You will be able to get through it. So, um, getting back to Melanie. um, Melanie is here, and once we see a baby come in, it does change everything. Because before Melanie came in, it was about getting the room ready. And is the camera system ready? Are the logistics ready? Do they have the employees? Do we have the families? But once we bring a kid in, it just changes everything. I mean, look at this cutie. Can I hold her? (laughs) Hola, Melanie. ¿Cómo estás? Mira, toda esta gente te quiere ver. Sí, tú le puedes decir adiós. Two-year-old Melanie. Um, this is a particular baby dedication, and I, uh, I'll try to sum it up in a story. Um, Jessica and I were talking about her the other day and about putting this together. And out of the blue, she looks at her, her, at her ear, and she says, it's, it's her ear pierced? So I look at the other side, and we're going to come. kind of looks like, and I didn't think much of it. Um, her comment was like, "Oh, because if they are peers, I wouldn't want them to close. Because if her mom and her family want them open, like I want to keep them that way." And as I was driving home, it just hit me like, she got it. And that's the an invitation that it's out there for us. We've been invited to take care of these kids for a little time, make an impact in their lives, take care of them, love them well. And pray for them, and they go back to their homes, to their families, um, and that God may have great things ahead of them. So um, I'm going to put some oil on Melanie, and this is as a sign that we believe God is with you. Dios está contigo, Melanie, y Dios te va acompañar el resto de tu vida. And I'm going to pray over her. I'm going to pray in Spanish, so don't go thinking I'm going in tongues. But just, just a heads up on that. Um, and we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray for her, for her life, her health, her process, um, her legal process, her family, and her future, and that the Vernes might provide a loving shelter for whatever the next upcoming weeks may be. Um, so would you pray with me? You can do it in English. It's okay. Um, Señor Jesús, um, yo te doy las gracias por la vida de Melanie. Gracias porque tú nos has permitido tenerla en este tiempo. A pesar de cuáles sean las circunstancias, estamos agradecidos porque podemos abrazarla como iglesia en estos días. Señor, oramos por salud para ella, porque ella pueda crecer una niña fuerte, inteligente, que pueda ser de influencia donde quiera que tú la llevas. Señor Jesús, solo tú conoces el proceso por el cual ella tiene que atravesar legalmente. Lo ponemos en tus manos, ponemos a su familia, ponemos a su mamá en tus manos y te pedimos que prontamente ellas puedan estar juntas, recocijándose y celebrando como familia. Que el tiempo que la tengamos con nosotros como eclesía la podamos amar bien, la podamos abrazar bien y podamos darle el soporte necesario tanto a ella como a todas las personas que la están amando en este tiempo. Oramos todas estas cosas en el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ekthesiahouston.org.